Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In 2006, director J.J. Abrams and star Tom Cruise gave the world a stunning return to the world's greatest action franchise. In 2022, we take a return trip to Japan to try one of its most popular whiskeys. The film is Mission Impossible 3. The whiskey is Suntory Toki. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at Mission Impossible 3. Brad, when I saw this on your list, I was freaking pumped because this was the first (laughs) Mission Impossible movie that really got me into Mission Impossible. You know what I mean? Like the original came out in 96. Brian De Palma directed that movie is a freaking banger, but I hadn't seen it growing up. I remember renting Mission Impossible 2, which was a really cool sequel in that they went out and hired John Woo, who was like, you know, kind of blowing up at the time, really famous Hong Kong director. But that movie just is is kind of a failure all around. Not not a good movie. It's not good at all. (laughs) And then they took a number of years off before they kind of re kickstarted the franchise with Mission Impossible 3. And I was uh, 15, 16 years old. This was like I was target demographic for this movie. And I went and saw it in the theater. And man, I was just blown away. And I think that in the 15, 16 years since this movie has come out, a lot of what this movie did has been kind of copied and mimicked. And I think that this movie copied and mimicked a lot of other things, too. But for the most part, you could probably release this movie in 2022 and it would still play almost perfectly where I think the original 96 one, like it, it has kind of some of those nineties action movie relics. It's still really fun and it totally works, but I don't know if you could get away with like the pacing and the cinematography of the nineties one, the way you could get away with this one. I don't know, man, Tom Cruise's haircut in uh, the first one is Mm. like impeccable, most, (laughs) the most perfect nineties action star haircut. (laughs) It's when you could really still get away with rocking like, legit sideburns yep like he you know i mean they weren't like mutton chops but there's something about the sideburns that like we've we've shorn our sideburns down farther (laughs) as the years have gone on bob i am with you though on mission impossible 3 i will say though this is one of the most traumatic movie going experiences i ever had as a uh as a young person as a teenager traumatic traumatic wow okay so there's a very specific scene that i will never forget uh, do you remember when Ethan in, in Mission Impossible 3 is making the mixed drinks and he's reading the lips mm-hmm. of the, the party of his wife and they're talking about the lake and he tells him what lake it is? I sure do. So so I'm watching the movie. We're in theaters. Me and my best friend Mike and his dad, we, we go out to see the new Mission Impossible, super pumped. And the camera 
cuts back to Tom Cruise behind that little like glass window thing mm-hmm. making the drinks, mm-hmm. and it stops, and the lights come on, and they straight up an EMS team comes down. Oh my gosh! And rescues somebody who's having a heart attack in oh the front gosh. of the theater. Did they defibrillate and, them? Because I just have to say, like, if if they did, then <laughs> what an immersive movie experience. It would have been. Uh, no, they did not defibrillate. They put them on a stretcher and took them out. And the manager of the movie theater came to the front and, uh, and apologized, told them that they were praying for the person who was just taken out by EMS. And they would resume the movie in 15 minutes. If anybody wanted a free ticket to another movie, if they wanted to leave, they could leave. Wow. So me and my best friend and his dad looked at each other and we're like, I don't know if I'm in the mood for a movie anymore. (laughs) Especially a movie where like, you know, stopping someone's heart is such a huge, it's like this in Casino Royale would be like the two that you really (laughs) want to avoid. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, we had no idea at that point what was what was coming for us. It was it was the most uh, unideal version of foreshadowing that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, man. Wow. What so, a yeah, crazy story. That, that was one of the wildest uh, movie going experiences of my life. So I mentioned uh, Casino Royale, and I guess we were probably going to bring it up at some point. But this movie comes out the same year as Casino Royale comes out. And so we're kind of kickstarting the Bond franchise again from scratch. And we're kind of doing the same thing here with Mission Impossible. And Brad, you know, like I saw someone refer to the Mission Impossible series as like the best action series of all time the other day. And it was a critic. And so like it wasn't just a flippant thing they said. And I think movie for movie, even including the low point that is two, this might be the most consistently good action franchise. And it's one that keeps improving on itself with each successive entry. It's just really interesting to me to think about this movie and Casino Royale coming out in the same year because both of them went the quote unquote like gritty route in a way that we hadn't with Bond or with Mission Impossible to this point. There's a lot of overlap in terms of like the storylines. And I just found it really interesting that there were two movies that were so similar released in theaters within a few months of each other. Yeah, it it is amazing how like the tides of cinema can move in the same directions, even with completely different crews doing completely different things. And I think with Mission Impossible 3, what you really have is Tom Cruise, in my mind, taking more direct control of the franchise Mm -hmm. and like pushing it in the directions that he is interested in going in. And the, the results, in my opinion, is absolutely spectacular. Well, as we get into talking about it, Brad, we're going to segue into Brad Explains, which is our favorite segment of the show. But before we get there, we do want to encourage you, whether this is your first time listening or you're a longtime listener, check us out on Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com slash film whiskey, where you can sponsor us at three different tiers, a $3, a $5 and a $7 a month tier. At the highest tier, you get completely uh, unique episodes Brad and I sit down after each and every regular episode and we record a conversation based on a discussion question on the movie that's just for our $7 subscribers. But at any level, you get a ton of bonus perks, including access to our Discord server, which we plug at the end of every episode. We'd love to have you join the community, so please find us on Patreon. Brad, it's time for Brad Explains. I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty easy one. Like, this movie doesn't have a ton of plot going on. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a good old yeah. fashioned 
here's a thing. Here's a MacGuffin. Go find a MacGuffin movie. Dude, this this movie has the greatest like expose of the MacGuffin of any movie. Yeah. It just straight up at the end of the movie is like, hey, what's this thing we've been chasing? Who knows? <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> he, he's basically like, hey, what's what's the MacGuffin? And the guy's like, it's a MacGuffin. The Tom yep. Cruise is like, ah, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne in his perfect voice. You MacGuffined me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. You have 60 seconds on the clock to explain the plot of this movie. Can you do it? Ethan Hunt is getting married, but he's also a secret IMF trainer who sends people into the field. One of his field agents gets captured, so they go to rescue her in Germany. They fail. They go to chase the guy who killed her in Italy, and they capture him. And then he gets recaptured on this epic bridge fight. And then let's see what happens after that. The bridge. And then they go to. Oh, and then Ethan gets captured by the IMF because he's a bad guy now. And he escapes with the help of his handler, and he goes to China, and he gets the rabbit's, the rabbit's MacGuffin, and <laughs> he gives it back to the bad guy, and the bad guy kills his wife. But then it's not his wife, and and he runs a lot, and he, he shoots the bad guys, and then he kills himself to, to stop himself from dying, and it's freaking epic. It's the coolest thing in the world, this, Bob. Yeah, this movie owns, dude. This is such a good movie, <laughs> and I went into this movie... Like, remembering how much this movie got me excited for the series moving forward. This was like a formative action movie for me. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as, you know, one of the main villains, I remember being completely terrifying and and how he had just come off of an Oscar win. And he was like, I'm doing it, baby. I'm going to make my summer action blockbuster and (laughs) and just completely owning the screen in a way that when I went to see The Dark Knight two years later... I, I kind of pointed back to Casino Royale and to this movie as, you know, yes, the Joker was something we had never really seen done before. And that tone of movie for a superhero was something we'd never seen done. But I have to give J.J. Abrams a ton of credit in that, you know, the the Shanghai sequence in this movie is, you know, almost copied in The Dark Knight in that Hong Kong mm-hmm. sequence. And how the the villain here felt so much more threatening than most screen villains I'd ever seen. And, you know, so when you get to the Joker, it's like, all right, I got to throw back and give Philip Seymour Hoffman some credit. And J.J. Abrams for allowing that performance to kind of take over. Yeah, the way Hoffman takes this character and runs with it, it really does have that essence of like, I don't even know who you are. Don't even really care who you are. I'm just going to destroy you. Because you are in my way. And that's kind of, it, it kind of feels like a baseline foundation for with Heath Ledger could build upon the Joker. I think that the the scene that really got me with with Philip Seymour Hoffman, because he doesn't really feature prominently in the film until about like 40 or 50 minutes in, like halfway through the movie. It's after Tom Cruise has taken him in this airplane and he shoves him and he, the dude's like hanging out of the airplane and Tom's about to kill him and his team members are shouting at him like, Ethan, what are you doing? And he, they pull him back up into the plane and he looks at Tom Cruise and he says, Ethan. And the way he says it, you mm. can tell that he is nonplussed. He's not bothered by what just happened. And he now knows who just tortured him mm-hmm. and he's going to make him pay. Yeah. And it's just the way he says that in such a cold, cold way. Just, oh, gives me the chills, man. 
Well, since we're already diving into performances, let's kind of finish out our conversation on Philip Seymour Hoffman before we move to the rest of the cast. I have to say, if there's a nitpick I have with this movie, it is that it kind of does the the Dark Knight Rises thing where the main villain isn't really the main villain. And you find that out like towards the end of the movie. And I hate when they do that. I hate the fake outs because you build up one villain and it's like, oh, this is an imposing person. And then it's like, no, that's just Darth Vader. Here's the emperor, you know, and it's like, oh, I got to get concerned about another villain now. (laughs) <laughs> and it, d- it didn't totally work. My life is so difficult. I know. I mean, like, it just didn't totally work for me. But in addition to that, I was really shocked at how little Philip Seymour Hoffman is actually in the movie. Like, I, th- I remembered him being a much more dominating presence. And he definitely does, like, when he's there. But he's only really in, like, I don't know, four scenes of the movie. I- I'm curious. What do you mean by, like, the bait and switch with the villains? So like at the end of the movie, you know, again, this this podcast gets into spoilers. So uh, if you have not seen Mission Impossible 3, go watch it. It's a fun ride. And then come back and listen to me reveal that the real villain is Billy Crudup's character, who is Ethan Hunt's boss at the IMF, and that he has been coordinating this thing the whole time. There's a huge reveal at the end of the movie, and you find out that he's basically just using Philip Seymour Hoffman and his underworld cronies like a puppet. It, it's kind of like the Vader versus the Emperor thing where, yes, I guess the Emperor is more powerful, but we're more concerned with the battle between Vader and Luke. And in this movie, it's like, oh, OK, so like, am I supposed to care about the whole Billy Crudup like subplot or because I'm over here with Philip Seymour Hoffman and I want to see him get his comeuppance. And so it kind of pulled me in two directions where I couldn't really tell, like, who's who's the baddest bad guy? Who's the final boss here? <laughs> Who's the final boss? See, I didn't take it that way at all. To to me, it felt like Billy Crudup was more of just like a an IMF agent who was disenchanted with the system and like was kind of like, I'm still going to get the bad guys, but I'm going to use the bad guys to help get the bad guys. Yeah. And so I, I didn't really take him as like the final boss. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman is the one who gets the cool death. Like mm-hmm. like Billy Crudup just gets shot like a dog by by uh, by Michelle uh, Monaghan. Yeah. Michelle Monaghan. I was about to say Julia Monaghan, which is her her, char- <laughs> her character's name, name. Yeah. Julia. Uh, yeah, Michelle Monaghan shoots him at the end, and it's not even like really epic or interesting. It, it's pretty anticlimactic for mm-hmm. him, which mm-hmm. you know kind of fits his character. But, so I guess I didn't really have any issues with oh like who's the bad guy like Philip Seymour Hoffman is the bad guy in this movie. Sure. Did you think that we could have used more of him? Because that was my second point. Like, he just wasn't in it enough for me. Hmm. I don't know, man. I think that it's it's one of those cases of, like, there's just enough of him to... He is very potent in this movie. You only <laughs> need a few drops of him, and he infiltrates the entire film. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I'm okay with the amount of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, then let's let's kind of transition to I want to finish talking about Billy Crudup now, too. And I'm I'm pretty sure that's how he pronounces his last name. I've heard Crudup. I've heard Crudup, but I think it's Crudup. We haven't talked about him since Almost Famous. I was really happy to see him here. I just I really like him. He's a good actor and he he does a lot of theater now. I just kind of wish that the man had gotten the career he deserved in film because he's just so good. And he came on to realize like that he's made millions of dollars being a supporting character. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but like 
you know, and he probably just doesn't want to do like huge franchises. I'm sure he's been offered stuff. He was uh, Dr. Manhattan in the Watchmen movie. So like he's been in superhero stuff, but I, yeah, I just wish that we talked about him in the same breath as some of like the big, big actors in Hollywood. Cause he definitely has the talent for it. I so, like that. He almost brought out the twenties uh, gangster in you. <laughs> like you, you literally just said, yeah, <laughs> come and get me Kappa. All right. So Billy Crudup in this movie, he comes on screen and I'm like, yes, Crudup's here. And then I'm like, why isn't he in more of these? Does he get killed by someone? Like what happens? And then I'm like halfway through the movie and I'm like, man, it's so good that they're not leaning into the fact that he can play kind of a dick really well. And I'm like, yeah, I love it when they just like leave him as a nice guy. And then the ending happened. And I was like, come on. You can't <laughs> let the man play against type. So, yeah. Good performance. Ultimately, I'm I'm bummed about where they went with his character. I would have liked to have seen him in at least one more Mission Impossible movie. I thought he was really good. I thought he was fine. I, I think that like you get different handlers for for Ethan and I, I think all six movies. Yeah, pretty perhaps. much. Uh, every so every for, handler is like, uh, I'm actually a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, they're allowed to play with their own tropes. Sure. <laughs> uh, I guess for me, Crudup didn't add a lot to the movie like he like he was fine i think that his best scene is when he's talking to ethan after ethan's been captured by the imf and he's like talking about how disappointed he is in him but all the while he's you know mouthing to him like where he needs to go and handing him a knife so that he can escape Uh, like i really enjoyed him in that scene but uh, I think if we're talking about people from the IMF that had really just great performances, I would lean towards Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, because he's the person that you think is the bad guy for most of the movie, and you don't really find out that that's false until the very end. He's really good, and they play up that uncertainty really well. Lawrence Fishburne's good in everything. Like, I, yeah. I mean, it's just you get him in your movie, it's like a home run. He just has such an incredible voice, and I think it's the way he carries himself mm-hmm. that, like, he's one of those people that can immediately fill a room mm-hmm. with, like, with his presence. And so when he's when he's interrogating them at the end of the Germany mission, and you know, accusing them of of mishandling things and authorizing operations that shouldn't have been authorized, like, you can feel the conviction and belief behind his his words and his actions and he just contains so much menace within mm-hmm. his figure that i just it, he's just phenomenal and it almost makes his character even better to find out at the end that he really is a good guy mm-hmm. like like to know that he really believed what he was saying at the start of this like he wants things to be done well rather than impulsively and so he while coming across as the bad guy because of misinformation he genuinely is a foil for Ethan Hunt. And I think that's what I like about his character is like Ethan really is impetuous and crazy and will do anything to win. And Lawrence Fishburne is set up as an antagonist to that as this controlled, calm, cool headed, like I'm going to win through bureaucracy. Lawrence Fishburne is one of those actors that can take dialogue that is like objectively not good and deliver it so well. And so convincingly that you come out of the scene saying, like, that was really clever dialogue. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the scene where he's interrogating them at the beginning of the movie and he's making all these, like, references and just establishing himself as, like, a no-nonsense guy. He makes a, a passing comment about, like, the invisible man. 
And then he like looks at Ethan and he's like, and by the way, that's Wells, not Ellison, in case you thought about being smart again. And uh, <laughs> it's like, it's not a very good line. And it doesn't really give you that much more insight into the character other than I'm annoyed. And he delivers it so well that you're like, ah, this guy, he's really not messing around. So like, he, <laughs> there are certain actors that just have a talent for elevating dialogue to the point where you like it, it casts a positive light on the screenwriter. Like it's it's just a gift. Well, yeah, I Fishburne is just amazing in this. I think my goal at this point is to talk about every person in the movie other than Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually kind of gearing us towards that. So let's do All it. All right. I'm in. All man. right. Then let's jump over to Michelle Monaghan because we just talked about her a couple weeks ago with Gone Baby Gone. Talked about how her character was kind of just the supportive girlfriend and how we wished she had a little more to do. And Brad, we fired up this bad boy and found <laughs> out that she is the supportive wife and doesn't yeah. have that much to do. Hey, man, she uh, she hits his chest a few times. She sure does. Magic magically starts his, his heart. There's also like this is one of those movies where. There were a couple moments in this movie, like when Ethan gets uh, has to drink that potion that knocks him out and he's dizzy. Mm -hmm. There's just like a random overlay of Michelle Monaghan, like stripping and like to yep. demonstrate, like I'm thinking about my wife. But it's also like this was completely unnecessary. You could have inserted just an image <laughs> of her face. Like, I don't need to see her bare body at all. So like, hey man, you know, he's, uh, he's he wants that honeymoon. He's yeah, he's recalling fonder times. <laughs> Clearly. But yeah, like I, I did feel kind of bad for her that not only does she not have very much to do, but they were also like, all right, also take your pants off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you, dude. I think that Michelle Monaghan, I like her more in this than I liked her in uh, Gone Baby Gone. Mm -hmm. I think that she actually shows a little bit of tenacity. And I think that in her small moment of glory, when she kills Tom Cruise and, you know, he teaches her how to use a gun really quick. Like she like she you see her in the midst of fear, in the midst of like, I don't know what to do. But you like, I don't know the way she controls her face, like she controls her breathing. She thinks she uses the the mirror a la Jurassic Park to figure out where the bad guy is. Uh, she knows how to reload the gun like. I just liked her in that scene. She showed some tenacity and, and bravado. And I was like, okay, come on, Michelle, let's go. Like, like you're actually doing something here. So I, I really liked her in that part. Um, I will also say, you know, the people talk about the John Wicks movie being accurate and, you know, the, there's only so many bullets in the gun. Uh, he tells her that there's 15, 15 bullets, bullets. Yep. And she shoots 15 times and she has sure to does. reload. I was like, I counted this time. I was like, all right, come on, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the, the minor IMF people. So out in the field with him is Ving Rames as Luther, who is just fantastic every single time. And they're Dude. still wheeling my guy out. He's got to be like almost 70 years old by now. But even in Fallout, they're like, hey, you might not be able to run anymore, but you can defuse a bomb. And he's like, yes, I can. <laughs> it's just, and in this movie, I feel like, is where you really get the the depth of the relationship. And this is where I, see, I really do see the series kind of take a step in the right direction because they make it a point to flesh out Ethan's back, not backstory, but like life away from the IMF. And when they share that moment on the roof in Shanghai, right before Tom Cruise, you know, swings across, it's really heartfelt and touching. And, and Tom Cruise tells him, like, thank you for doing this for me, man. You know, and. I don't know. Like, I, I think when this moment or when this movie takes a moment of respite, 
it always uses it to its advantage. It always uses it to remind you that these people are, at least in theory, real human beings who have real emotions. And I, I think Ving Rhames does such a good job of building that camaraderie with Tom Cruise that has carried through to the other movies. I have two thoughts on Ving Rhames in this movie. First off, the fact that Ving Rhames still comes across as just such a badass after his role in Pulp Fiction is a testament to the just immensity of his acting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> uh, secondly, that scene where he's talking to Ethan about Carrie Russell's character, uh, Lindsay Ferris in the movie, and he just flat out asked her, like, hey, man, like, was there something going on there? Like, were you guys sleeping together? And Tom Cruise goes, she was like my little sister. And then he just flat out asked, her, asked him, were you sleeping with your little sister? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, he just, and, you know, Ethan Hunt just looks at him and Ving Rhames goes, hey, man, everybody needs somebody to ask him those questions. Mm-hmm. That moment, I'm going to philosophize about human, like the nature of humanity. That might be one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. Like, <laughs> like I know it might sound dumb, but in that moment, it just hit me at the core of my being of like, yes, like everybody does need to have someone who is willing to ask you the hard questions, who's willing to go into the places and say, hey, man, like, I know that humans are messed up and we do dumb stuff. So I'm going to ask you, did you do the dumb thing you shouldn't have done? And that can be on very small levels and it can be on very deep levels. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that Ethan has somebody like that in his life makes him in like inordinately better of a character than James Bond. Mm. And I, I think that it gives Ethan a depth and an, and just a believability that somebody cares about him enough to be involved in his life mm-hmm. and ask him the hard questions like Luther, in my opinion, makes the entire Mission Impossible franchise believable and interesting and better and and, <laughs> yeah. and better. Yeah. So, yeah, dude, I am 100 percent in. If there's anybody in the Mission Impossible franchise that's a 10 out of 10 outside of Tom Cruise, it's Ving Rhames. All right. Very briefly, I think this is the first time we see Simon Pegg show up as Benji in the Mission Impossible films. Uh, very clear at this point that they had not figured out his character yet. Like he, yeah. <laughs> uh, he just doesn't really seem to fit the movie very well. Not really his fault, but they've definitely used him to greater effect in other movies. Yeah. Well, I think at this point, Simon was still a little bit on the lower end of the movie star totem pole, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like I'm trying to think, had he, had he done Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz at this point? Or was he, he kind of in the middle of all those? He had done Shaun of the Dead. I don't think. Yeah, Hot Fuzz didn't come out till the year after this. Okay. Yeah, so like he he's still in the process of being discovered. And I will say I think that the Mission Impossible franchise is one of the reason he is discovered as like a really solid actor. Um and I like him in this. The the whole scene he has talking about the anti-god doesn't really fit with the movie very well. No, and but they the should take t- a long time to just like <laughs> let him tell that story. Like the whole movie, Tom Cruise is like, I'm in a I'm in a hurry. And then Simon Pegg's like, let me tell you a story about this professor I had. And it, I mean, it goes on for like seven and a half minutes and they're just it, it staring like, at him. It feels like Norm Macdonald's moth joke. <laughs> like, like he just keeps going on and on and on. 
<laughs> and at the end of it, they're like, what the hell was that? Right. And he goes, you know, it's just something I think about when I think of the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the other two people that are out in the field with him are Maggie Q as Jen and Jonathan Reese Myers as Declan, who are both really good and then never get asked to rejoin the franchise again. Yeah. And, and I was thinking like, maybe they get killed. No, they just, Tom Cruise is like, I'm done disappear. with you now. Yeah. I was kind of surprised. I, was, I really liked them both. I was so disappointed. This is like probably one of my favorite Mission Impossible teams, you know, because they, they change pretty much every movie, which once again, I'm like, okay with that. I, I like that they switch it up, but I really liked Jonathan Riss Myers and Maggie Q, like mm-hmm. the the roles that they were asked to play, mm-hmm. which, you know, you know, like, let's just say if you had each actor make up you know, a certain percentage of the importance of this movie. So like Ethan Hunt is like 70% important and everybody else has 30% to make up. Jonathan Riss Myers and Maggie Q combined make up about three or 4% importance of the movie, but they freaking rock it. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that they were spectacular. The scene when Ethan and Declan are arguing uh, as Italian delivery men, I, like Jonathan Riss Myers is spectacular. He's charming. He's funny. He's believable. I I just I really love them so so much. All right. Finally, before we go to break, the most important person in this whole movie, Brad, Carrie Russell. So Carrie Russell <laughs> shows up for. Did you like that? She shows I, up I for about thirty two seconds in this movie, and she's like just a big enough star that you could probably be like, hey. You know, people still recognize you, but you're not doing much right now. Do you want to come be in my movie and be the fake out death? And she's like, sure. Uh, I got to say, really good. Like, I wish we had had more Carrie Russell in this franchise. When they kill her, spoiler alert, like 10 minutes into the movie, (laughs) when, when when the explosive inside her head goes off. The face that they have my girl make with the with the eyes go in each direction is the funny, the most unintentionally funny thing I've ever seen. And like when it first happens and they cut away real fast, it's like very gruesome. But then there's probably like six or seven shots where they're just like, you know what we need to see again? We need to see Carrie Russell's dead face. And they keep cutting back. <laughs> and then they like they cut to a new scene and she's in a body bag and they unzip it and they just dwell on it again. And it's like after you look at it for a couple seconds, it's like this is hilarious. I don't I don't know if it's I mean, it's probably just me. I just thought it was really funny. And and one of the big glaring flaws with this movie. Bob, I'm, I'm going to get I'm going to give you something here that, that you need to know. It's not funny at all. <laughs> It's very gruesome and gross. It's gruesome, but it's also like, it just looks corny after a while. (laughs) You texted me that and I was like, you texted me that like five minutes before I got to that part of the movie. And I was like, really? I was like, I don't remember it. I remember it being pretty like terrifying, like when it happens, like abnormal and strange and weird. And then I got to it and I was like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's not funny at all. (laughs) Bob is a, is a dark, dark soul. Yeah. Yep. You know who uh, they almost had to play this role, but oh. uh, it got messed up? Who's that? S- my girl, ScarJo. Really? That Scarlett Johansson was was cast yeah. in that role. And then with production delays and issues that they had, they uh, she had to do s- something else, had to go work on another project, and they got Carrie Russell. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well. Which is like interesting, because I feel like I don't really know anything about Carrie Russell. She was on a TV show that was really, really popular for a long time. And then, okay. it was, you know, it was one of those things where like the TV show ended and she she's done movies like she's been 
consistently working since then. But it, it was it was the peak of her career to do that TV show. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah. it was it Felicity. Is that the show? No, I I literally. Yeah. So the show Felicity. Uh, fun fact: the show went downhill because in like the I don't know whatever the, the third or fourth season, uh, they gave her like a really dramatic haircut. And and it was like the anti Rachel from Friends where like, Uh you know, everyone wanted the Rachel. They cut Felicity's hair and it like ended the show legitimately. Like the ratings went down so much that they just were like, we're done (laughs) after this season because they cut her hair. I feel like that would be like an episode of Community. (laughs) Like they just completely like change Annie's hair and it causes the entire school to fall apart or something. All right, man, we're going to press pause here. We're going to come back and talk about the two men at the center of this movie, Tom Cruise and J.J. Abrams. But before we get there, let's try this Suntory Toki. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. Today we are checking out Suntory Toki. This is probably the most popular Japanese whiskey from the Suntory line in America. It's it's relatively inexpensive. It's a blend of two single malts that Suntory makes called the Yamazaki and the Hakushu. And then they blend it with a single grain whiskey called the Cheetah. And you can get all three of those, but they're significantly pricier. So they just blend them here and they release it as a non-age stated thing. And it's way cheaper. So this is a lot of people's introduction to Japanese whiskey. Brad, I believe we've only had three Japanese whiskeys on the show up to this point. So this is a realm that we're still relatively new to, but we've, we've had enough scotch. And the the production, the process of making Japanese whiskey is so similar that I feel like we can still give some some pretty accurate notes on Japanese whiskey. But I always am excited to try another one. My uh, my question is, does this bottle come with a replica samurai on top? (laughs) It does not. So we're going to deduct at least four points for that. Easily, easily four points off for the chintziest (laughs) (laughs) bottling. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's that I've ever seen that bottling is so frustrating because it is like it's such a gimmick, but it's so well constructed, like it's made out of metal. It's really nice. And I just think about like if we were going to export American whiskey to Japan and do the same thing, like what would we just like build a porcelain like fat guy with a trucker hat (laughs) and like put it on top of your Jack Daniels bottle? I feel like it'd be like Paul Bunyan on top of the bottle. (laughs) Just a big lumberjack with an axe. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. We're not even talking about this whiskey. Let's get back to this whiskey. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? Oh, man. It's it's a pleasant nose, Bob. It, mm-hmm. It's got some honey going on, a little bit of peach. Um, there's a little bit of floral stuff going going on there. And it's a little bit oaky at the end. So, it, like, it's nice. It's not overpowering. It's very delicate. I'll give it a seven and a half. Yeah, there is something underlying it, though, that it keeps kind of like undercutting it where every time I'm thinking like, oh, this is really pleasant. There's some nice like peachy notes on this and I could really get into this. This has lots of lemon zest. And then underneath all that is like the brine from a jar of green olives. And I can't shake it like there's just something heavily green olive about this. And that's something that we've gotten on on scotch before, especially peated scotch. Like that happened with one of the art bags just a few weeks ago. But here it's really fighting against the super bright fruit notes, and it doesn't seem like they are in harmony with each other. So I think I am going to deduct a few points because of that. I'm only going to give this a six and a half on the nose. And then we get into our taste. Uh, for me, it's very thin. 
Uh, it's a very soft palette. Um, you, that honey really comes through. And then for me, it kind of moves into a more earthy, like grass and floral notes. Mm-hmm. That's like interesting, but not necessarily my favorite. I, I'm going to come down a little bit. I'm going to give it a six out of 10. Yeah, this uh, this is really pleasant up front. It has just a bit of tingle and then it hits like the mid palette and it's just gone. Like it's just water at that point. And yeah, it's really watered down. This is bottled at 43% ABV, so 86 proof. So it's not the lowest proof that it could be, but it really does seem to have affected something here. I'm not really a huge fan of this, Brad. I like it. And it's a pleasant, like I could drink this the way that I would drink a beer after mowing the lawn. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it is, yes. it is something that's like refreshing, but it, it doesn't linger at all. So I'm only going to give it, now I'll call it a six on the taste. Yeah. And then we have our finish. It's short, it's oaky, and you still have a little bit of that honey lingering. Uh, I'm going to stay at a six out of 10, Bob. Yeah, I think a little bit of the malt comes through on the finish, but it's just such a small amount and it fades really quickly. There's not much finish to speak of here. Brad, I think this might be like one of our shortest reviews ever because there's just not a lot to pinpoint here. I'm going to give it a five and a half on the finish. Yeah, it it really is kind of like the light beer of the whiskey world. <laughs> <laughs> like literally. I mean, it has the yeah. exact same effect on the palate that light beer has. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, we'll get into balance. I think this is actually like decently well balanced. Uh, there's just nothing like outstanding about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll I'll give it a seven out of ten. Yeah, I'll come up to a six and a half. Like, if we're just talking balance, this is actually probably like an eight out of ten for a whiskey that is designed to only be like a six point five. You know what I mean? Like, it consistently delivers what I yeah. think they're going for here. It's just like not a great whiskey. So I'm gonna give it a six point five. When we get to value, Brad, what is this selling for in the state of Ohio? Well, when I look it up in the state of Ohio, the only thing that comes up for Suntory is Suntory Toki with highball glass. Mm. So it's like one of those Christmas time like yes. packages they give you. <laughs> oh, no, it comes up. If you just if you just type in Toki, they've only got it listed oh. as Toki Japanese. So it's the same price, though. It's thirty six ninety nine. They don't have it listed under Suntory. No, it's just called Toki Japanese Whiskey. <laughs> Good job, Ohio. Toki. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's my bad for thinking I should search the word Suntory for this whiskey. <laughs> Sorry about that, Film Whiskey Nation. Uh, yeah, so you said it's $37? It is. Okay, so $37, uh, yeah, I'll give it a 6 much. out of 10. Yep. It's too much, uh, but I'll say... It's a pleasant experience. It It's just not much more than that. It's mm -hmm. just kind of like a nice little pleasant experience. If this costs like $29.99, I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. Great. It's an imported whiskey, you know, 20, 30 bucks. It's pleasant. It's it's fun. And I would honestly probably keep a bottle, you know, to share with friends and be like, hey, this is kind of like a starting point for Japanese whiskey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. I'm going to give it a six on value. It used to be closer to $30. I think even a year ago, it was only $34. So it has been slowly increasing in price. And I don't think the quality is there to justify that. So Brad, I'm coming out to a 30.5 out of 50. I, I appreciate this for what it is. It just doesn't have much going on in the glass. So it's like if you dig Bud Light and you want the whiskey equivalent of that, like that's what this is. And I'm not knocking anybody who likes that. If you want something that's much softer and goes away quickly and doesn't linger and isn't going to give you much of a chest burn, 
start here. Toki is like exactly what you want. But compared to some of the more complex and robust whiskeys we've had, it just doesn't stack up, Brad. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I'm coming to a 32.5 out of 50. Um, I Honestly, I don't know if I would encourage you to try this at a bar. Like, yeah, I, I just don't know if it would be worth paying, I don't know, six to nine dollars mm-hmm. somewhere around there. I don't think it'd be worth paying that much for a shot of this. I think the way I'd say to go about it is like get a few friends who are interested in trying a Japanese whiskey and split the cost of a bottle yep. and just drink the whole bottle on a, you know, on a hot summer's night on the porch and just shoot the crap and and enjoy some decent whiskey. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly would recommend buying a bottle before buying a glass of this. Like, I think it's worth, you know, if you're, if you're trying to get into Japanese whiskey, this is probably going to be the most available thing by you. And it's a good starting point. Like, there's nothing wrong with having a starting point whiskey. So I would say pick it up. And if you like it, keep getting it, you know? So we're coming out to a 63 out of 100 or a 31.5 out of 50 on average. I'm not going to recommend... Uh, Other than to say, if you're new to Japanese whiskey, this is the best place to start. But I will say, if there's a place to start with the Mission Impossible franchise, it might be with with Mission Impossible 3. Well, Brad, let's get into talking about it. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Suntory Toki, a whiskey that we are uh, not super bullish on. Is that fair? Oh, totally fair. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But you know what I am bullish on, Brad? Mission Impossible 3. Two facts and a falsehood. That's what I'm yes, bullish on. Yes, you are. On. The best segment. <laughs> I don't know. Would you say this is our best segment or is it still Brad Explains? I I really like this segment, I Bob. do too. It's fun. It's competitive. That's like America's roots. It is. And there's also like the added bonus of not knowing whether we're going to get fact checked after the fact. Yeah. And have to retroactively change scores. Like it's just a... <laughs> It's a complete crapshoot, and I love it. It's chaos. It's it's absolute chaos, Bob. Are you ready for your three facts uh, about Mission Impossible 3? All right, let's hear it. All right, fact number one. While he normally does all stunts on his own, a pair of cracked ribs prevented Tom from performing the majority of stunts in this movie. And the the wild thing about this fact is that it set back filming for about a week as they had to find a stunt double. <laughs> they they actually did in the production process and casting, they didn't find a stunt double for him because he normally does every single one of his own stunts. Interesting. Okay. Fact number two, the role of Benji was originally given to Ricky Gervais, who had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts with For Your Consideration. Huh. Fact number three, while they were filming in Rome, you, you know, when they were, uh, he was climbing up the wall to get into Vatican City. Mm-hmm. Uh, the production crew couldn't do anything like to officially shoo away all of these inquisitive Italians. And so they set up a phony second unit a little further away and they hired several women in bikinis and several older women dressed as nuns and pretended to be filming takes for the movie while the main unit filmed Ethan climbing up over the wall into Vatican City. Huh. You know, I'm just going to I'm not even going to like go in depth on how I think the other the other ones go. I'm just going to say I think two's the falsehood. And I have no basis for that, but I just can't see Ricky Gervais in this movie. Uh, I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to say two's the falsehood. Bob, number 2 is not the falsehood. Oh, wow. Oh man, they made the right choice. Yeah. Oh, 100%. They made the right choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said earlier, think about it. At the time, 
Simon Pegg was not really super well known, and Ricky Gervais had just created the the Office, mm-hmm. the British version, and for whatever reason, they wanted him. Wow! But uh, he he did not do that role. All right. So what was the falsehood? Uh, Tom Cruise did not have two cracked ribs. Did he do his own stunts? He did do his own stunts. Interesting. I will say this is one of the few Mission Impossible movies where I can really see some uh, like some green screen going on, uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, the scene where he's like floating out of the the skyscraper with his parachute and yeah. and kind of plummeting towards the ground. Yep. It's it's pretty clear. Like, obviously, you're not that that's something you can't capture. But especially with where the series has gone since then and like in Fallout where you like follow him jumping out of a plane and it's very tactile and real. <laughs> yep. You could kind of tell that they were patching over some areas where he couldn't do a real stunt. Yeah, there, there's definitely I think that if anything, it's that that in between time when green screen and CGI just wasn't quite up to standards that you start to see with like Avatar coming out in 2009, 10, 11. Mm -hmm. So I I think that they did the best that they could, but you are 100% right. There's a few few issues with the stunt work in this one, but my boy Tommy Cruise still nailed them all on his own. He sure did, man. Let's save Tom Cruise for the very end, and let's talk J.J. Abrams, because if I'm going to nitpick the movie, I'm going to nitpick J.J. Abrams, and it has become very fashionable to nitpick J.J. Abrams in light of the Star Wars fiasco and the fact that, you know, once he started doing Lost and he developed this whole, what's it called, like the the mystery box approach to, mm-hmm. to story writing, you know, he doesn't really do that here. Like there's a MacGuffin at the heart of this movie, but it's a pretty A to B movie. So I have to give him a lot of credit. And I think that some of these sequences are among the best in the Mission Impossible franchise. Like. They're not done in one long take the way that many of them are now, but the bridge sequence is one of the best action sequences, like just as a set piece of the last 20 years. It's excellent. It's utterly phenomenal. There's a great, like there's a great elevator sequence. You know, people always talk about the Captain America winter soldier one. This is a really good elevator fight. I got to give it to him. Yeah. There's something about setting an action scene in an elevator that like. It kind of it almost reminds me of like when we talked about baseball movies and how everybody knows the geography of a baseball movie, mm-hmm. like everybody knows the geography of an elevator. Mm-hmm. And, and that might sound like a dumb statement because you, you might just be like, well, Brad, elevators are tiny and they're they're this big, empty shaft. And I'm like, yes, like that's the point. Like when you set an action piece in the middle of an elevator, everybody knows that there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And that like the action is fast and and brutal and heavy. And then he just freaking pops the top off and starts climbing up the <laughs> the thing. It's just it's just such a great set piece. And I think that even beyond the the action pieces in this movie, like the whole Italy gig from the point where they they have their van fake breakdown and they get into that argument, you know, to the point where they're blowing up this beautiful car to make it look like uh, the bad guy. Uh, what's his name? Davian, I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. Uh, they make it look like Philip Seymour Hoffman died. So mm-hmm. like that whole scene, I think might be the best bit of the whole movie. And it's not even the main point. <laughs> So I think that Abrams gets a lot of crap for ripping off Spielberg a lot, and and it's become very apparent. You know, he made a movie called Super 8. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Not that great, but it it really aped the Spielberg 
Close Encounters, E.T., kind of, you know, even some of the movies that Spielberg produced, like Goonies. It had all that going on. And he has said for years and years that he wants to be the next Spielberg and that Spielberg's his favorite director. And I think here he shows how to do an homage to Spielberg and to do it well and then to move on. Because there's a sequence where Tom Cruise is trying to escape out of a building with a parachute. And that entire sequence, the way that it's filmed, the way that it's cut together, the visual gags, total Spielberg. Like when Tom Cruise lands in the boardroom, <laughs> it crashes through a window and lands on a table. And then there's just it, it it racks focus to the back of the room and there's just a janitor standing there staring at him. Total Spielberg <laughs> moment. And then the wind picks up and Cruise gets sucked back out the window. Total Spielberg moment. It's a chuckle. And then when he hits the ground and the rabbit's foot goes rolling down the street, total Spielberg moment. Like there's just so many in that sequence. But he also knows like when to stop doing that and to get serious again. It's really nice to have that bit of playfulness in the movie. I just wish that Abrams did a better job of, you know, in general of knowing when to do homage and when to stop. Do you know what I mean? And when to do and when to do his own thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's the issue with Abrams, right? Is that he just doesn't really do his own thing. Uh, for me, my issue with JJ in this movie is like, I, I'm just going to ask you a simple question, Bob. Are, are you ready? Mm, I'm ready. How much shakier could the shaky cam have gotten <laughs> in this in this shaky cam movie? Oh, my gosh. So here's the thing with me that I was surprised to see him doing was this was Abrams trying his best to make a Michael Bay movie. And it's really apparent towards the beginning of the movie in that kind of Germany X fill sequence. Like it, it is shot like a Michael Bay movie. They're going for the kind of grittiness. They do the high contrast thing. Everything kind of ha has like a greenish filter on it. All the buildings in this movie are very industrial and they're either like really grimy or they're like really shiny on the inside. It's just it's total Michael Bay. And it makes me kind of wonder, like, I don't know a lot about the production history of this movie or what's rumor or what's not. I kind of wonder if Cruz had gone into this movie thinking like we need Bay for this movie or we need something like him because Abrams doesn't really make another movie that looks or feels like this. But Brad, like I sent you a YouTube video to watch that was breaking down Michael Bay's visual style. And you can't tell me that Abrams wasn't just directly trying to copy him. No, a hundred percent. I do know that uh, originally it was supposed to be David Fincher. Uh, who was going to direct uh, Mission oh, Impossible 3. Interesting. Okay. Which, yeah, would have been absolutely wild. Um, huh. And then replacing Fincher was uh, Joe Carnahan. Okay. And he was actually in production for like up to like 15 months. Um, but it took so long that he uh, moved on and, and just like wasn't down with it. And so they finally got J.J. Uh, Abrams. So interesting. There you go. Huh. No Michael Bay, but I I would be curious because the way J.J. plays it off, there's just explosions everywhere, and the the camera movement feels similar to Bay. I I'm with you, dude. the The movie screams like Michael Bay all over it. Mm -hmm. But I will say this: I think it works. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I, like the opening action scene, man, the way they show the guns, the turrets swiveling, it kind of has like a Star Wars feel to it. Or um, uh, what, what was the uh, Pearl Harbor? Yeah. That, that Michael Bay yep. did, like the way the turrets are, are, are spinning around and then shooting into it. Like it just has a heavy 
feel to it. And it's just cool. (laughs) I will say, like, there are some moments in this movie that I was really surprised at, like in a pleasant way. The uh, the needle drop of we are family uh, coming on the the boombox. Very. It's really, very strange. It's really funny, though, because then they cut outside and it like JJ just blasts it like it's the soundtrack of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't do that kind of thing in Mission Impossible movies. And so I really like I kind of liked it. I was like, yeah, screw it. Like, let's do something fun for the next 10 seconds. And then we're back into the action again. For me, I just I think this movie still works, Brad. Is it the best Mission Impossible movie? No. Is it like, you know, is the ending maybe a little bit of a letdown for me? A little bit. But it's a really good movie. And what it all comes back to is Tom Cruise. Like, there's not much more we can really say about Tom Cruise that we haven't said in other episodes. I mean, Edge of Tomorrow, we we were, we raved about the guy. He's so good, Brad. He he is just he is like the platonic ideal of a summer blockbuster actor. And he also binge watched the first two seasons of Alias and then called J.J. Abrams to direct this movie. I can see it. Right. He had foresight, (laughs) dude. Tom just has this impeccable way of being absolutely just easy about everything he does. Like he makes everything look so smooth. And like for a series called Mission Impossible, he just has a way of making the impossible things look possible. Mm hmm. And I think that's why he's so daggone good in these movies is like he's just hyper focused, hyper in control of himself as an actor, like like Tom Cruise as an actor and Ethan Hunt as a character. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there's just no way to explain the Mission Impossible franchise without explaining Tom Cruise as a human being. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know if there's been ever a character that is so fully embodied by the actor who plays it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just spectacular. Brad, I think I'm ready to go into final scores. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Uh, I'll, go, I'll go first. It's my movie. <laughs> uh, I think that this movie is, is just flat out spectacular. It is fun. It is crazy. Uh, Tom Cruise's running is spectacular in this movie. Um, I've never seen an actor who can run with better sprinting form than Tom Cruise. Like he just looks impeccable while he does it. I think that the 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 scene where Michelle Monaghan kills him by sending a shock through his body is one of the most like violent shots in movie history, and mm-hmm. it's spectacular. Uh, I love this movie. I, there are issues with it. It is not a perfect Mission Impossible movie. But the reason I picked it for this fr- for this uh, season is just because, man, oh, man, I just think this is a blast of a movie. Uh, it never stops. It never quits. It, it just moves you from place to place to place and has action set piece after action set piece to keep you moving. I love this film, Bob. I will give it a 9.5 out of 10. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I So here's the thing about this movie is that I think everything about it works. Like there's nothing about it that doesn't work. But there are degrees of like this works less than this. Does that make sense? Like, oh, 100 percent. And for a movie to be a 10 out of 10, I feel like everything has to work and it has to work almost to maximum capability. And so for me, the thing that is going to bring it down just a little bit is that the ending of the movie is just not as strong as it should be. And for me, it's the it's the fact that they really kind of took Crudup's character and made him 
the brains of the operation, which left Hoffman just as like big brutish guy that had a grudge. And, you know, it just kind of devolves into the scene of him like beating up Tom Cruise and being like, didn't I tell you, Tony? Like just punching him, you know, like Jeff Bridges. <laughs> and and it just that didn't work for me. And it, it's because the plot of the movie kind of falls apart if you give it any thought towards the end of the movie. Like the thing that's driving Davian is that he's pissed off at Cruise for the way that Ethan interrogated him. Like you hung me out of a plane. You disrespected me. But Ethan was only doing that. Ethan only interrogated him in the first place because Crudup's character sent them to get him. And then that really makes you think like, wait a minute, when you break down Billy Crudup's character's motivation, which is like, we're going to take the rabbit's foot. We're going to let it be sold by Davian to this Middle East buyer. We are going to use that as an incentive to go start a war and implement a democracy in this Middle Eastern country. It kind of makes the IMF completely superfluous to the whole thing. Like, why couldn't why did you ever involve the IMF in in any way? Like, why couldn't you have just let Davian keep the rabbit's foot, sell it to the person, you know, it was getting sold to and then started your war? Like, I don't understand the plan at all, because I, like, the, do you know what I mean? I think you might have missed one key line, Bob, because Billy Crudup's character didn't actually send them to get Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Because if you remember, uh, Benji finds the that he's going to Rome the next day to Vatican City and Tom Cruise tells him, don't tell Crudup about it because I want him to have deniability. So he didn't actually oh, send them right. to go get that's him. That's right. That's right. Okay. So eh, I, I don't know, man. I, I think Ethan made an enemy all of his own because he's trying to figure out who the mole is right. in the IMF. I did forget about that line. You're right. Okay, it makes more sense. Uh, I'm going to I'm still going to give the movie an 8.5 out of 10. I think it works really, really well. But like if Fallout is a nine and a half and the original for me is probably like somewhere between an eight and a half and a nine. I think this is just a hair below that. I I need to rewatch four and five because four is the one where he climbs the Burj Khalifa and five is is, it's awesome. So cool. Five is the (laughs) one where they do the thing at the Kremlin. But I don't remember like Mm -hmm. anything else that happens in either of those movies. And so. They're kind of nebulous. Like, I don't know what my ranking would be, but just of the ones I remember, like Fallout's at the top. Number one is underneath that. Three is beneath that. And then there's like, you know, 30 feet. And then there's two at the bottom. So, yeah, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. I think it's a great movie. We're coming out to an average of a nine out of 10, but we'd like to know what you think. So please let us know if you've seen Mission Impossible three, where would you rank it among the Mission Impossible films? What kind of score would you give it? You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump on our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to the fans of the Film Whiskey podcast. So get on our Discord. It is found at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we are going to wrap up my list with a movie from the director Barry Jenkins that I think didn't get the love it deserved. It's called If Beale Street Could Talk. Very different movie from Mission Impossible 3, but we're going to wrap up my list and then we'll be back for our final episode, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. So that kicks off next week. And for the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.